Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Please join me as I pray now. Father, oh, what a, what a, what a service this has been. You have manifested yourself in our midst, and we praise you for that. But you still have a message to tell us. You have been talking to us all week, and we pray that you will put the finishing touches on this message. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of John D. Rockefeller Sr., he, um, we were told, that was a strong and husky man, even, even in his youth. And he, and he early in his life determined that he was going to, to make money. That's what his, he, he was all about, and so he, he, set, he drove himself to the limit. We're told that at age 33, he had earned his first million dollars. At age 43, he controlled the biggest company in the world. At age 53, he was the richest man on earth and the world's only billionaire. But then he developed a sickness called alopecia. We've heard a lot about alopecia in the last couple of weeks because of this uh, Will Smith kind of thing, yeah. Well, the hair of his head dropped off, his eyelashes and his eyebrows disappeared. He was shrunken like a mummy, we're told. Now, even then, his weekly income was $1 million. Imagine that, making $1 million a week. But even then, he, he could only eat milk and crackers. He was so hated in Pennsylvania that he had bodyguards day and night. Could not sleep. He stopped smiling ever long since then and enjoyed nothing in life. The doctors predicted that he would not live past another year. In fact, the newspaper had gleefully written his obituary in advance just in case for convenience. Yeah. But those sleepless nights set him thinking. And he realized that, that with new light that he could not take a dime with him when he died. Money wasn't everything. He realized that God was very displeased with his sinful life. Then and there he surrendered his life to Christ, repenting of his sins and pleading for God to change his heart. The next morning, he awoke a new man, began to help churches and his, with amassed wealth, and the poor and the needy were helped too. He established the Rockefeller Foundation, whose funding of medical research led to the discovery of penicillin and other wonder drugs. John D. Rockefeller Sr. began to sleep well then, eat and enjoy life. You could say he began to live life to the fullest. The doctors had predicted he would not live past the age of 54, but he lived to the age of 98, all because he was transformed. He was changed. You know, perhaps you have heard it say, maybe you have said this at a time or another, you know, you know some people, oh, that person will never change. I know that person, oh, that person's been that way, that will never change. Not even God can change that person. My mom used to say that about my father. I've told you that, you know, they, their relationship wasn't the best. And, uh, you know, my, my dad had it coming. He, he wasn't really a good man with and a good husband with her. So you could argue, yeah, if, if, if there is a poster child for a person that, that even, not even God can change, that was my father. But Jesus took a hold of my father. Amen. Yep. He, uh, he allowed me to, to, to share the gospel with my dad, and, and my dad accepted Jesus, and I began to see his change. And I know I'm going to see my father on that glorious morning. But maybe you're skeptic. Maybe, well, that's your father. 
I know some people that can't change. Well, is that, is that right? Are we doomed to be this, the person that we are, we've always been? Or is there a hope for change? Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Our scripture reading was found in verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And when you look at, for that, uh, just, just as about a little bit of context, um, Chapter Roman, the book of Romans is really divided in two, you could argue. The, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is the theory of the gospel, the logic of the gospel. You remember, this is part of, of Paul's strategy. He had a practical strategy and a, str- a, a, a strategic uh, a purpose, rather, and a theological purpose. And theological purpose, part of a theological purpose was to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so he does this in the first 11 chapters, the theory of the gospel, if you will. And chapters 12 and on, now it becomes practical Christianity. In other words, now that you learn everything about what it means to be saved, now you're going to look at how does that look like? What does that look like? And he starts that in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Notice it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is that good and complete and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have discussed a number of topics since we started last Sabbath. Uh, we looked at the first three chapters of Romans, and we were put in contact with the depth and the breadth of our sin. We realized that sin is contagious, and everybody has it. We all have the common problem, the cancer of sin. It's been contagious, and we all have it, the common problem. And then God provided a remedy for this cancer through the sacrifice of Jesus, and that remedy is available to all of us. Jesus, the common solution. And then we talked about the common way of godliness, what it means to walk with Jesus. And and walking with Jesus, having accepted him as Savior and Lord, means that we will not be condemned. We saw that last night. We're not condemned because Jesus was condemned in our stead. We're not condemned because we've been transformed. We're not condemned because we're part of the royal family. And we're not condemned because nothing can separate us from the love of God. We saw that last night. And so is that it? it? Is it all about us? Ought not to be a response from us. How does the Christian supposed to live? What does a transformed life look like? What does it look like to be saved? So notice Paul starts here in chapter 12, verse 1, with the word therefore. We talked about this last night too. Remember, the word therefore is a connection word, a bridge word, that connects what he previously said to what he was about to say. So in the first 11 chapters, he looks at the logic of the gospel, of the theory of the gospel, and now he makes a conclusion. Therefore, and this is how you're saved, you've accepted the common solution. Therefore, therefore, signals a beginning of a new explanation. And Leon Morris in his commentary in Romans says that the justified man, and you are been justified, right? Are we, are, have you been justified? You've accepted Jesus, you've been justified, you've been declared righteous. So the justified man or the justified person does not live in the same way as the unrepentant sinner. In Paul's theology, uh, uh, um, basically in Paul's theology, salvation, look at this, salvation comes before behavior. See, we have it backwards. We think we have to behave a certain way, and when I'm behaving a certain way, then I'm, uh, I can seek salvation. And so and, and there's some of you that, that maybe are here that say, well, you know, I'm not ready. 
You feel, oh, I'm not ready to surrender to Jesus. I'm not ready to be baptized because you think all of a sudden you must be perfect in order to be saved. If we're going to wait till we're perfect to be saved, then we're never, never going to be saved. Salvation must go before behavior. People walk with Christ in God's law because they've already been saved. You know, it's a response to that. And this is fundamental, friends, because all too often people try to obey without developing a relationship with Jesus first. And the result is legalism and meanness and spiritual pride. And so Paul starts this therefore as a response to salvation, highlighting the importance of priorities, of making God our priority, that God should be number one in our life and that nothing or nobody should be more important than him. And remember, our priorities are shown by our actions. If God is your priority, you're going to show him by your actions, right? It's not just talk. Holiness to God is a way of our worship of him. And holiness includes not only how we live in our mental, uh, uh, spiritual realm, but also how we relate to others, the physical. How we relate to others, how we treat others. We are to be living sacrifices, which means a life fully dedicated to God, a life fully surrendered to him, that we're giving him our best. This is not a means to an end, of course. This is a result of that salvation. This is a result of taking that proverbial uh, vaccine against sin, the common solution, which is Jesus. See, God is calling us to a complete transformation. He's calling us to a metamorphosis. You know what a metamorphosis is, right? This ugly, wrinkly, hairy, ugly caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly, right? It becomes something different. It becomes something beautiful. Complete change, right? In fact, the, the word transform is metamorpho, which is where metamorphosis comes from. So this transformation there, what, what does this look like? We're talking a lot about change, about transformation. We know that we, if we've been justified, we're saved. Well, now that we are saved, what does this look like? How is this transformation manifested? Well, Paul, there's a number of ways we're going to look at today. So notice first in verses 3 to 8. We're still in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. For I say, through the grace given to me... To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one in Christ. All and individual, individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our, in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So notice, Christians need to have a correct estimate of themselves in the context of the church and in the context of the ministries of the church. This was a crucial problem in Rome because, of course, there was racial and ethnic problems, right, because of the Jews and the Gentiles. But each had a difference in talent and position and function. It's much like right here in, in, in First Church. Yeah, we have differences in ethnic lines and backgrounds and talents, but we ought to use them. We ought to function as one. 
So God is telling the church of Rome, and of course telling us, that we need to recognize our differences and put them to use in a manner that will lead to the unity of the church and in a manner that will promote his agenda in the world. That's how it's supposed to be done. So we ought not to think ourselves too highly uh, as compared to others. Paul is talking about pride, and pride should not be part of the Christian character because nobody's better than anybody else. We all have the same problem, sin, and we all have been provided the same solution, which is Jesus. Yeah. And so we have different gifts, too. There needs to be unity and diversity. So notice Paul says that since we have these gifts that God has given us, what are we supposed to do with them? What does it say? Use them. That's what it says. Use them. See, it's very easy and tempting for us to sit in the church as a spectator and say, well, you know, it's fantastic what they're doing up there, but I'm going to sit in here and enjoy it. We're not supposed to be spectators. We're supposed to be participants. And that means that God has given us gifts for that purpose to advance this agenda, and we are to use those gifts for the, God, for the glory of God. God's command for those of us has been say, has been that, that, that we're saved is to get off our gift and use them for his glory and do it cheerfully. So, so what does a, a transformed life look like? What does it look like to be saved? The first way you show that you're saved and you're being transformed is by using your gifts. Are you using your gifts? Because every one of you have, has a gift. We've talked about extensively over the last number of months. Because nothing happens at church by accident. It just doesn't fall from the sky. It happens when people dedicate themselves to use their gifts. And that's how we show the world that we've been transformed. Have you been transformed? Is God changing you? Is there a metamorpho in your life? Show that. Use your gifts. And if you don't, and if you don't know what they are, again, we, we, we can talk about this. We provided ways for you to do that. And if you, if you don't never found a way to, to use that gift, there's ministries. You know, Anne needs help for this nursing home ministry. Use your gifts for that. You know, we need gifts, to, you know, just simply by going out and passing these bags outside, which doesn't take much, by the way. Ha- passing bags and just, we're not even talking to people. We're just putting the bags on the door. And, and sometimes there's only two people doing that. Come on. Let's use our gifts for the glory of God. That's how we show that we're saved. The second way a transformed life is manifested is by loving one another. Loving one another. Notice uh, verses 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. So we ought to love how? Without what? Without hypocrisy. Now, who is Paul talking to here? Is Paul doing an evangelistic meeting where, where, where all we have is a bunch of people from outside the church that don't know any, anything about Jesus? Is he talking to them? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. And he's telling the church, love without hypocrisy. Now, this word hypocrisy comes from this Greek word that means to act. You, you say one thing, but you mean something else. You say, I love you, but your knife is right behind there. Is there hypocrisy in it? Is there love with hypocrisy in the church? Oh, I'm not even going to request an answer. But if this is happening at the church of Rome, we could certainly surmise that happening today. Remember what Jesus said? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We have to love one another in the church. It has to be without hypocrisy, not acting, but for real. 
As the new relationship to God can be summed up with one word, which is faith, so the new relationship can be summed up, uh, or at least the new relationship to God can be summed up as we love one another with one another hypocrisy, no hypocrisy, but one love word is love. Love is the word that characterizes our relationship. It is only then when, when, when our hypocritical self-interest love is transformed into sincere love, that's when we can cling to all that is good. And this word cling means to glue. So imagine uh, the, the example, imagine what this will do to the world when our church loves, in, uh, loves one another the way that Paul says here, without hypocrisy, the impact that that will have in the world around us. That's why Jesus said, the world will see that you're my disciples if you love one another. The influence that love has on the world. That's what the people need to see. And so how do we show the world that we're saved? By loving one another. And notice that it's brotherly love. He talks about brotherly love. This is why we call each other brother and sister, right? Because we're a family, and it's great to be part of a family that loves one another. So loving one another, this is the second way we show that we are transformed, that we are saved. The third way is by overcoming evil with good. Notice verses 17 through 21, still in chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. A uh, French author and, and, and poet, Victor Hugo, said it this way, Love each other dearly, always. There is scarcely anything else in the world but that. To love one another. So how do we show that we live a, a transformed life, that we have been saved? What does the salvation look like? By living God's love. And finally, a transformed life will be manifested as we walk in the Advent hope. In the Advent hope. Notice verse 11. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I want you to think about that because maybe you came into the Advent Hope movement many years ago because you believe that Jesus is coming soon, but you know, many years have passed by and here we are. Well, guess what? That return is closer than we think. And I think is around the corner. You know, Paul talks about salvation in three ways. He talks about justification. He talks about sanctification. And then he talks about glorification. Now, uh, justification, as we've talked about, that, that, that legal pronouncement that, that you're a righteous in the sight of God the moment you accept Christ, that happens the moment you accept Jesus. And so if you've already done that, that is something that is a past event for you. If you haven't done it, then you need to do that right away, because that's the first step. The moment you, you, you accept Jesus, you're justified. Now, sanctification, we talked about this last night, is a lifelong process. It's the process of spiritual growth. And so sanctification is something happening right now because God's still working on you. You're still being sanctified. Glorification is a future event. Uh When the righteous will resurrect and those alive are transformed into glorious bodies. Glorification. Now, without Jesus, without Jesus, glorification isn't possible. So Jesus justified us and is sanctifying us in order to glorify us when he takes us home. 
And so again, if you haven't accepted Jesus, if you haven't accepted justification, do it now because otherwise sanctification and glorification will mean nothing for you. But for all those of us who have been justified, uh, for those of us who are now being sanctified and soon will be glorified, the soon coming of Jesus should be a motivator to be ready to meet him. Oh man, this is this was weak. This was weak. The, uh, the soon second coming of Jesus should be a motivator for us to be ready to meet him. Is Jesus coming soon? Then we should be motivated. If anybody should be motivated, it should be the Advent movement, friends. Now, I'm not going to go into details here, but friends, you need to do a self-evaluation. Can, we, can, can, the world, can the world see that we're motivated because Jesus is coming soon? I'm not, I, I, listen. Remember, we show, we show, we show this, tr- this transformation by our actions. I'm just going to say, where are we when, when, when we should be a church? Where are we when we ought to be praying in the middle of the week and only there's three people in prayer meeting? Where are we when we're having a week of prayer and there's only a handful of people in the church? People, Jesus is coming soon. We ought to be motivated. That's why Paul is saying to be awakened as opposed to sleeping. Are we awake or are we asleep? You make that determination. We need to live and behave as Christians who have been justified, who are being sanctified, and we need to live like those who will be glorified soon when the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross will finally be complete. My friends, uh, transformation is possible. Transformation is possible. Look at the screen. In a world where old, run-down vehicles transform into gigantic, futuristic super-robots, there can only be one possible explanation. You're watching a movie, dude. But in the real world, transformation is possible. planet lives are being changed, hearts are being reborn, addictions are being broken, and people are being set free by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, or the obstacles you may be facing. Transformation is possible. And that, belong, and that applies to you too. So what does it mean to be saved? Well, it simply means that in spite of us, of who we are or what we have done or the times that we have done it, God gave all that he had in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus died to pay our debt of sin, thus allowing us to be declared not guilty, innocent, righteous, what we've been referring as justification. This justification is undeserved, therefore it is by God's grace. It is a gift. But salvation doesn't end there. Because there needs to be a natural response from us who seek to honor, glorify, serve, and obey that God that gave it all for us. It is because of this that we need not to doubt our salvation. Because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon God. And he already did the heavy lifting. He did the work. And as long as we walk with him and live with him, friends, our salvation is secure. We can live like a saved person right now. Right now. But you know the choice is yours. I've used, again, several times the the analogy or the illustration of the COVID vaccine. Because while maybe not everybody did get the COVID vaccine, the vaccine is available for everyone. But the government, at least, praise God, is not making anybody take it. It's still your choice. And God certainly could make you take the vaccine of Jesus. But he's giving you the choice. But Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord maybe will be saved. What does it say, Nathan? It will be saved. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you calling on the name of the Lord? And it's more than just calling. It's accepting him as your Savior and Lord. Desire of Ages, page 4 3. The blessings of salvation are for every soul. For every soul. Nothing but his own choice can prevent any man from becoming a partaker of the promise in Christ by the gospel. So if salvation is something that you're struggling with, if salvation is something that right now you are not sure about, maybe you, you just need to take the first step. And it's easy. Because the first step is a gift. The first step is just saying yes to Jesus right now. And if you've already taken that step, then it's to live a life surrendered to him. You know, we could, we could talk about everything we ought to do for God because of what he has done for us. But you know that what, the only thing that the Lord requires is your life. That you live for him. That you give it all for him. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.